Hello everyone, it's March 16th, 2021. So on-orbit robotic servicing of satellites, it's the future. Exactly how it all plays out, who can really say? But on this week's show, we're going to talk about several companies that are trying to realize this awesome future. So onward and upward, and liftoff. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 301 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So one cool thing that just happened, so I figured we could mention it, is um, the most recent Starlink launch, which has a first stage booster, which has now made nine launches, or has had nine successful launches and landings, which mm. that, came, that came out of the blue for me. I didn't know that they were that high, but I thought the highest was like seven, maybe. Yeah, I thought six. So they're just one away from ten. They are so close. Mm. That is really exciting. Um, I had no idea that they were up to nine. Because, yeah, it really, it really does does feel like we just talked about them getting up to yeah seven or eight and we're like wow yeah <laughs> yeah like when did eight happen and we didn't know about it you know like i didn't even know about that because i feel like it was like six or seven i'm kind of losing track but once they hit 10 that will be a milestone so they need to relaunch this one <laughs> like as soon as they're sure that it's safe to go and i think that they want to you know have that win just to you know have that record so i can't wait oh, to yeah. see hopefully this one or maybe some other one which is um i don't know if there's any boosters that have launched eight times uh they're also in somewhere in the running the key is that there's been starlink launches you know that's really been it if you look at these the the workhorses 1051 and 1049 it's just you mm -hmm. know they did maybe one or two things before they've just been heaving Starlinks up there. And this is the kind of thing that you can test out with a Starlink launch mm. because, you know, and we've talked about it before, but it's just because they're not flying someone else's payload. Right. Plus, I think it's just that they're building these satellites in such numbers that I feel like if they lost a batch of them, it wouldn't be that big of a deal because they're going to have to, you know, they have kind of like an economy of scale thing going on, or at least I assume they do at this point. And, you know, that's probably only bound to grow since they're going to have to be producing who knows how many hundreds, I mean, for the foreseeable future, just because, you know, they're, they're also going to be deorbiting some and then, you know, replacing them. So it's just going to be an ongoing process. Yeah. It's cheaper, both money-wise, but also reputation-wise. You know what I mean? Anytime you lose somebody else's payload, that's a... Yeah. You know. That doesn't look good. There's a Ukrainian startup that is looking at in-orbit servicing. It's called Curse Orbital. Never heard of this, but I guess, Dennis, you're going to tell us a little bit about it. This is interesting. So it's a Ukrainian startup. At first, you know, just reading that, I my mind automatically went to Russia, but no, this is actually Ukrainian. So I think that right there is kind of cool. Yeah, pretty darn close, Ukraine and Russia. But before you get started, Dennis, I just wanted to point out to the listeners that um, we didn't really have any um, major news items that were looking right to to cover in the in the long form uh, spaceflight news segment, and so Dennis stepped up and he he wrote us three different uh, looks at different um, on orbit servicing companies or, or vehicles that are happening. So like th this is going to be really good. And, yeah. and thank you, Dennis, for putting this together. Oh sure, and and I have to in turn thank uh, uh, spacenews.com because they covered this uh, a few different of their reporters all in the same on the same day and so they kind of oh, had nice. their own little sort of uh, collection of uh, in orbit uh, we servicing. only steal from the best yep. right <laughs> you know it. so right so yeah this this curse orbital it does have a history where um does this have anything to do with the curse docking system right that literally mm -hmm. talked mm -hmm. about last week and you know has been brought up on the show a number of times um and indeed it does uh so uh, what happened was after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, then uh, that basically reverted to uh, the, the ownership, the rights to the Kurs docking system reverted to the Ukrainian government. And then more recently, the rights were secured by a uh, this this 
company, essentially, right, that was able to found, uh, you know, create this company called Kerr's Orbital, right? So they're all about this sort of, you know, uh, rendezvous and proximity operations. And uh, so, I mean, it, like, to give you an idea of, like, who's involved here, this is essentially just like, you know, a private startup, but headed by really big people in uh, Ukraine. And so um, the former head of the Ukrainian Space Agency, uh, Volodymyr Usov, is one of the co-founders. And uh, along with him, there's essentially an on-orbit servicing pioneer. Uh, it looks like he's been doing this for a long time, uh, as well as a PhD in engineering who's got all sorts of patents on orbital servicing, and then a uh, an investment banker who basically is bringing in what I assume is a ton of cash, or at least, you know, working on raising the cash with them. And so, uh, yeah, so this Kurs Orbital, they want to basically create a uh, a vehicle that's doing what the uh, Northrop Grumman's uh, MEV-1 is, and 2 uh, are doing. You have your spacecraft go to geostationary in particular and uh, extend the lifetime of these uh, these spacecraft that are already in orbit, these satellites that are in orbit. And so uh, they call it the, their their spacecraft their you know mission extension one uh, it's called uh, the Kurs one and essentially they're developing a new uh you know and improves you know based on the heritage of Kurs uh, uh, a rendezvous acquisition module and so it's going to use machine vision radar and robotics to quote enable fully automatic docking even with uncooperative subjects and hmm. <laughs> and so you know that's that's an important thing and you know jump a little ahead or jump ahead a little bit right uh mev1 northrop's mission extension vehicle one did already you know uh, uh interact with a uh, a dead in the water intel sat but this is really cool because to make this sort of industry work we need to have you know more players and more you know people getting in there and doing this because the big theme now has been people are moving away from geo and more towards you know leo constellations and so um this might, you know, hopefully give, you know, Geo a little bit, a little bit more pep. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> get some good news up there. And so, um, you know, in, in particular, th this company, although it's, you know, going to be years behind Northrop, they, they will, you know, save billions of dollars by not having to build, you know, a, a system from scratch. Because you can imagine this is going to be quite, you know, it's a lot of work to, you know, not just get your spacecraft up there, but to be able to, you know, identify, find that other vehicle, the the the, the satellite that you want to connect to mm -hmm. and attach to it safely and be able to actually extend its, you know, lifetime and not end up, you know, just smashing it and destroying it, <laughs> which would not be good. So I'm I'm looking at the article and, and so one one interesting thing that can be done with these types of servicing satellites, and I hadn't considered this, is that by deorbiting the satellite, you actually will give the satellite more operational lifetime because mm -hmm. it doesn't have to waste fuel deorbiting itself. Because mm -hmm. I always think of it as just having to service the satellite, but you're not really I I mean, I guess you can consider it a service to, you know, like deorbit the thing. But um mm -hmm. but yeah, I hadn't considered that just by being able to take it out of orbit or like rather to push it into a graveyard orbit, you're actually, you know, extending the lifetime just because it can use that much more fuel to keep itself going. Right. Um, so, I mean, that's one thing. That's probably not the ultimate goal because I feel like there's more that can be done. I actually think that's a big part of it, though, because so in my limited understanding, it's that, you know, wh why do you make these, why are these vehicles all aiming for geo, right? And the reason is, is because if you can extend the geostationary operators, you know, satellites, then that's just going to be more money that they make, period. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And so because it's kind of like a very quick business case you can make, you can say, hey, Intelsat, you're going to be able to make X many more millions of dollars just by having that extra lifetime. You know what I mean? Like that's an easy enough to scale number uh, to take its, you know, your expected, you know, uh, profit from that satellite and extend it by, you know, some 
fraction of an amount. And so as a result, you can kind of make that argument like that, you know, you've got these assets already in orbit. And if you get our service, we will just make you more cash, period. Because it's going to be, Curse one is planning to charge like 10 to $15 million per mission. And geo and kind of uh, uh, television, right? And, you know, that kind of satellite service is by far the biggest chunk of the pie for how much money uh, goes into satellite, like where the profits are and everything. You know what I mean? That's that's where the money is. If you look at like a pie chart of all, all the different things you can do with satellites, it's it's the money that comes in from these, you know, basically broadband and, you know, television uh, broadcasting uh, services. And so that's why you know, if that's money right in the company's pocket, then they're willing to kind of pay for it. And so that's why, the, like, everybody's targeting Geo. It does say that they expect this to be like 60 to 70% of their revenue. But um, it's just surprising that actually, that yeah, like you said, you can make or you can charge 10 to $50 million. And that's still a bargain considering how much more money they will make by having their satellite right. still in operation. I didn't realize it. Well, I guess I probably did that they do make a lot of money using <laughs> these things. I mean, you know, because if you're charging for things like television or, you know, some other form of communication, then yeah, that's a huge profit there. So and, it's worth their while. And that's a good point because like, right, like my brain was thinking, well, you know, going from geo to graveyard, you know, that's not that much fuel. Like, I mean, how much time can that add? But I guess if you're comparing even that sort of lowish Delta V burn to just station keeping, then that really mm -hmm. does extend, you know, the life by quite a bit of time enough to, you know, make that money back. And then some. So, so one thing I wanted to point out is that this is sort of a uh, limited opportunity like a, a time-limited opportunity for curs in particular, well, for servicing uh, companies in particular. Right now, there's this sweet spot where people have a lot of assets on orbit. Um, flying up new assets is expensive, more expensive than um, a servicing mission. And in the future, I suspect that what's going to happen is it will be cheaper to just uh, use longer lived technologies, you know, like as we're seeing more and more mm -hmm. electronic uh, or electric propulsion vehicles uh, up in geo. So like planning on using a servicing mission is only buying you... Uh, a distributed cost, right? Um, it, it's never going to be cheaper to uh, fly a vehicle with half a tank of fuel and then later pay to top up that fuel. Um, <laughs> and so it, that that may not be a, a cheaper option to you know to fly up more fuel later and count on that delivery, but it may uh, it may be worth it if you you know only have X number of dollars today and you're trying to. Is that still amortization, uh, amortize the cost uh, of actually uh, getting fuel into orbit over a bunch of years? And, you know, you have to pay the the interest payment of that second launch or your share of that second launch. But with that said, I'm not trying to be negative uh, or pessimistic about uh, satellite servicing missions. I think they're really important. They will always be important. This is actually me being optimistic. This is a really good uh, opportunity to learn these lessons, how to do this. Um, because in the future we will, um, still be doing on orbit servicing missions, but they're going to be a lot more complex instead of just, uh, grabbing somebody by the engine bell and pushing them into uh, a junk orbit or uh, a disposal orbit, we'll actually be fixing parts. Um, we'll actually be topping up fuel and, and you know, doing real 
service, like what, what we think of as, you know, like a service station for your car kind of thing, like actually fixing, uh, satellites. Mm -hmm. But, but to get there, we have to do this fundamental work of just learning how to, uh, rendezvous with an uncooperative target, uh, mechanically, uh, secure yourself to it and, and then be able to push it to a different place. So, so this is really exciting, even if it's uh, a type of mission that is not going to be profitable in, in the very long run. You know, it's, it's going to be profitable for quite a while because so many vehicles uh, aren't built for this kind of work and, and being able to do this kind of work on those vehicles is really important. But don't you think, cause I mean, I kind of felt the exact same way about like five minutes ago, but now that I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking like, like you said, you can spread the cost and plus you can kind of also in some sense spread the risk because it's like, why build a large vehicle that maybe might need more complexity or something when in fact you can service it or just, you know, like even like push it into a graveyard orbit later um, because like perhaps you don't know it at the time. Like, you know, things change over time. And so as, you know, the market or industry or like whatever changes and, you know, the whole time this satellite's up there. And so you might not know that you need to keep it on orbit longer or maybe not. So how about you just wait and see, you know, and so like, you know, this kind of like gives you that opportunity because it kind of gives you some wiggle room to, you know, address that. So like you don't have to do everything on the day before you launch or not the day, but, you know, like you don't have to do everything before you like ever launch you can make those considerations much later on and so it seems like you know there's always like a case to be made because you know the industry can change or whatever you know things can change and you might you might change your mind after the thing has already been on orbit for several years right so i i totally agree with you david um the perspective that i'm coming at this from is i feel like lay people hear this and they think oh great well we don't need to build spacecraft that are long lived we can spend less money on cheaper spacecraft and just later on pay to to service them and top them up with fuel or move them to a different orbit and and that's what i'm saying is, is not what's going to happen um i don't think we'll we'll really ever see um an instance where somebody's building a new spacecraft and decides to put less capability uh, on that spacecraft um, because even if you didn't have to pay the service fee to somebody like Kurz, just paying the launch fees to to get a service vehicle up into orbit is going to be just as expensive as launching that vehicle in the first place. Um, but David, your your point that this gives you flexibility is really important. You do have to pay more for the service, right, than if you would have built that capability in to begin with. But that flexibility is really important. If you think that the that the orbital communications industry is going to be less profitable in the future, then don't put as much money into it now. And then you can, you know, pay a little interest <laughs> as it were yeah. and, and have that flexibility down the line. And, and you're absolutely right. That's, that's where the real value of this lies. Yeah. Cause it just seems like if maybe it becomes vastly more profitable to keep the satellite up there a few months more. And of course, you know, this satellite was built with all the bells and whistles. It's top of the line, but Hey, like maybe just a few months more and we can make, you know, X amount more money. Then yeah, you can go ahead and buy that service. And that's just something that you, maybe you just can't anticipate. I mean, I don't know. It just seems that there are, you know, financial reasons why this might be the case because, um, uh, that's just how the industry works because it is very much, you know, an industry. It's a business. It's, seems like this is where like you know the business aspect of spaceflight really comes into play (laughs) Mm because there's a lot of money to be made yes that's i think we're going to see a transition then you know because like ben that's that was really good insight because right now this definitely is a service of its time you know what i mean we've got these these geostationary satellites 
that have been operating for 10, 15 plus years, you know what I mean? Um, and they're just sitting up there. And right now, you know, if you could, you know, get this service to extend their lifetime, that's the way to go. Then when this becomes a whole, you know, ecosystem, a whole kind of like, you know, normal service that people can anticipate for. Yeah. Like you said, it's just going to be more expensive to kind of count on that than rather just try to make your, you know, satellite do what you want it to do. And then maybe, you know, after that, you know, after people start, you know, I don't know, budgeting for the fact that these, you know, service vehicles exist, then we might move more towards what Dave was originally talking about, which is kind of doing more interesting things, right? <laughs> than just, you know, pushing them up or pushing or pulling them down. You know what I mean? And, 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 and that's, that, that's great to like that, you know, that there is at least a business case to maybe just have it pass over that activation energy. You know what I mean? Give it that push and bump and then have it be self-sustaining at some point in the next, you know, 10, 15 years or so. Well, and heck, there may be a, a situation where it makes very real sense to put less fuel on your vehicle. I don't think this is going to be the case uh, anytime ever. <laughs> uh, but if the cost of launch per kilogram is very expensive now, and you think that the cost uh, of launch per kilogram is going to go down in the future and go down so fast that, you know, this all actually becomes, yeah, better to, to shift as much mass into the future as you can. Then, yeah, in that case, it totally makes sense. So this is really going to be dependent on how launch prices are behaving. I don't think we'll ever get to that extreme, but, you know, if as launch prices continue to fall, um, things like curves look better and better. Those margins get slimmer and slimmer that the, the, uh, amount of of margin that you need i guess the margins get wider the amount of margin that you need uh between the benefit of keeping this vehicle running versus servicing it yeah the cost of servicing it and i guess in order for it to be maximal maximally profitable um it would need to launch aboard something like you know a falcon 9 uh, or maybe even like a starship because in that way you can get the cost of fuel to orbit down like you know that much more and so it actually is a good business case um but of course you imagine that these other satellites would be launched on the same kind of vehicles but again just like you said you know like in the future that cost might come down and so maybe you can kind of you know bet on that um which i think that's a pretty safe bet but it's still, like you said, it's way cheaper to just go ahead and launch with all the fuel on board in the first place, but possibly, you know, I mean, who mm -hmm. knows? Or you could just go beyond your capability, launch with all right. the fuel on board, and then still count on having a servicing mission. Right. Well, that's the other, yeah. And that's, yeah. You, yeah. you pick the bus that works best for you, and your equipment is longer lived than its fuel supplies. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, and that, that really is literally what's happening right now. The instruments are living longer than the engines can uh, squeeze out of their fuel. So, and, 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 that, and that's actually a perfect uh, segue towards, you know, uh, Northrop's uh, MEV2, the mission extension vehicle, because that's, that's doing more than just, you know, that's not pushing or pulling an Intel set around. It's just extending a life by, you know, taking over that capability of the Intelsat. Uh, just to give you a, you know, a little background, if you, if you had forgotten last year, there was the MEV-1, which was super exciting when that launched. And uh, actually, it launched more than, I think, maybe two years ago. But in any event, it was last year um, that it uh, approached and attached to the 19-year-old uh, uh, Intelsat 901. And uh, this was one that was uh, dead in the water and has resumed operations, you know, since last year uh, after this happened. And it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's been uh, brought back from the dead. And so uh, MEV2 uh, now is going to do something a little different. It's going to uh, connect to a, uh, or attach to an active uh, Intel set. 
um, satellite. So this is Intelsat 1002. And so this is one that's been giving service since 2004. Uh, if you go to satbeams.com, which is a lovely website I like to go to anytime we're talking about geostationary satellites, uh, you can uh, look it up and uh, basically see some details about it, um, including, you know, where its coverage is. And it's actually at the position of one degrees, one degree west in longitude. And so being geostationary and at one degree west, that means it's almost exactly at, you know, zero latitude, zero longitude or null island. So it's it's like the, uh, I don't know, it's it's, it's at the uh, origin of the coordinate system as far as geosatellites go, <laughs> which I think is just a neat little bit of trivia. Yeah. But anyway, so yeah, so that means it's servicing, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's coverage is right over uh, Europe and Africa, but it's got so many transponders. Some of them can hit the, you know, uh, the eastern seaboard of the uh, Americas. So right now, MEV2 is just kind of hanging around uh, until SAT 1002, and you know the proximity operations have already begun. It's uh, it, it got a little closer, uh, did some calibration and tests of its systems, and then it's backed off. And now it's basically, I guess, in a hold where they're waiting for IntelSat, the customer, to basically you know say that it'll, uh, now now would be a best time uh, to attach uh, when it would be most conducive to you know what we need. But as I alluded to before, this isn't going to be about changing. Uh, Intelsat 1002's orbit, but rather just providing fuel and acting as the new engine for it. And so it's going to be kind of like we, you know, had talked about earlier about how you just everything else on board the Intelsat 1002, which again uh, has been uh, active since 2004. You know, the the transponders, the you know the the solar panels, all that stuff are still working just fine. So by by providing fuel, it's it's not it's not transferring any fuel over, right? It's just using its own onboard engine and its own onboard fuel and doing its own thing, right? Right. That's what I think it would have been, yeah. By 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 providing fuel, exactly. Just yeah. becoming the propulsive element of the the satellite, you know, just taking that yeah. over. Because yeah, there'd be no reason to do that transfer that I could think of. Especially if you're grabbing the satellite does it have a docking ring or or is it grabbing it by the by the engine nozzle again so it's got kind of a little i don't know like a a little pole it kind of shoots towards it a little proboscis mm-hmm. it sends towards the intel sat <laughs> with a, a coil around it <laughs> to hold them together which is a little different i didn't mention kurz one's design is to have a, a four little freaky looking uh t-rex arms that go and physically yep. grab <laughs> the um the, the satellite that it's heading towards but um i was thinking uh what's the cyber squid from uh from the matrix one of the later matrix movies oh yeah one of those oh mm-hmm. those those monsters yeah <laughs> Yeah, so uh, that'll be really cool. I'm sure that'll be, uh, you know, either something if we don't cover it, then uh, you'll see, though, in, you know, the news, the space news that, you know, MEV2 has, you know, attached. And that's the second time that, they, you know, that a geostationary satellite has had one of these on-orbit servicing uh, missions come and actually, you know, do its thing. Welcome to the future. Welcome to the future. And so uh, I, I do want to just end with one cool thing that I, I thought was neat that was uh, alluded to in both of these stories, which was just some kind of broader context about in-orbit servicing. And so there's this uh, marketing firm, Northern Sky Research, and they just are always looking at like, you know, how big of, you know, how's the market for in-orbit servicing going to change? How's the uh, market for uh, LEO constellations going to change? And that kind of stuff. And they, you know, do this analysis, come up with these reports, and then, you know, companies can go and buy them, you know, people on the in the industry to kind of get a sense of, you know, where the industry is moving. Just to put some numbers to all this is that their projections uh, uh, argue that or they, they anticipate in-orbit servicing becoming a $3 billion industry over the next decade. So in that case, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars um, 
per year, essentially. And uh, that demand, and they actually threw some numbers, which I thought was really cool, is that by 2030, they uh, project that there would be demand for services for 75 geosatellites, right? Right now in 2021, we've got two, but by 2030, there would be cumulative uh, 75, or at least I'm assuming that's cumulative. Yeah, that's gotta be cumulative. And then, yeah, and that over the next 10 years, uh, that there uh, would be uh, demand for uh, 230 uh, in-orbit servicings. Um, so we're talking about, it'd be very uneven, right? Because these are always, these projections typically, right? It's, they're always just ramping up. And so there'd be more of them in the end in the last, you know, eight, nine and 10 years from now than in, you know, one, two and three years from now. But that's that's really cool. And another thing that their report had pointed out was that there's uh, uh, the, there might be something that kind of uh, puts the kibosh on this or at least dampens the enthusiasm that, you know, a lot of people have for in-orbit servicing is that there's, uh, there's no standards right now. Um, they need to have standards for, you know, the technology uh, and uh, things related to, you know, security. Um, you can imagine uh, <laughs> something approaching you that might, you know, be mistaken for an anti-satellite <laughs> weapon, essentially, right? You know, you want to make sure that even though that sounds like, well, obviously, right, you, you told them that MEV-2 yeah. is coming towards you, right? But like, there's, I'm sure there's a lot, there's a lot of details and things to be worked out. And so um, there's an organization uh, called CONFERS, or rather a consortium. Um, that, you know, if you have a, uh, a company that you would like to join this, you can go for it. But they're essentially a, a, a group that's trying to uh, basically work on coming up with, you know, uh, some proper uh, standards and ways to do this. Because right now it's kind of, um, we're still in the very early days, but for this to be a mature industry, you really want to have those kind of standards uh, well established. So, you know, people know what to expect and that, you know, people can be held accountable uh, if it comes to that. Or rather corporations can be held accountable when it comes to it. And I, and I also thought Speedbird had a really good line in the in the chat here. Something to always keep in mind too, right? Because as space enthusiasts, right, you know, it's it's easy to you know it is easy to go and say like, yeah, that's cool. They should, they need to totally do that because it's cool. Um, and that you know, I mean, this opens up so many Kerbal esque ideas that we can do. You know what I mean? <laughs> but at the end of the day, uh, like Speedbird saying, uh, don't forget that they're businesses and you need things to make a profit. And so that's why uh, you know I yeah. like your optimism, Ben. That right now there's a good profit based case to make, and that hopefully then uh, we'll get into the more exotic use cases for these uh, mm -hmm. in orbit servicers. Yeah, the the Northern Sky Research uh, report seems like it could be really interesting to. Two, two things I'd like to see is the, uh, the reporting on, on how demand is going to change. That's more economics, less my speed, but I'd still like to see how they're deriving those numbers. Um, and that would actually, they're actually looking at this kind of stuff for real instead of just kind of spitballing like we're doing here. Uh, talking about just general principles that we're kind of guessing about from <laughs> from first principles, no no real data. But then I can't wait to see confers and, and maybe some of the other standards. Just like, what are the specifications for you know grapple fixtures like this? You know, it's like the the USB standard for satellites, um, and that's going to be really interesting mm -hmm. to see. Yeah, uh, worked out. And and if you want to check out their report, if it's anything like I, I mentioned in the chat that I get. I went to like one seminar by them and now I get emails every other day and they think I'm like a vendor, but, um, I'm, I'm sure for like a good thousand bucks or so you can buy that report yourself and, uh, uh, try 4,000, 4,000. Okay. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it ain't cheap. And so before we leave this segment, I just want to point out the Kurz orbital website, kurzorbital.com is so freaking beautiful. 
Um, mm. it, it's got lime green highlights and lots of animation. And so those two things alone make it feel really 1999. But <laughs> like once, once your brain kind of, uh, settles itself after the initial punch in the face, um, and you kind of get your brain into the design language that they're using, it's really good. It, it's a really, really pretty website. It's, it's stark. It's really good. All right, time to do the three short and sweets. What is the first one, Ben? HST is back online after a software glitch. After more than four and a half days in safe mode due to a software error, the Hubble Space Telescope has now resumed normal operations. A recent software enhancement uploaded to the Great Observatory, designed to compensate for fluctuations from one of the gyroscopes on board, was responsible for the glitch. Once identified, engineers were able to bring HST back online by disabling the software, which they planned to correct before re-uploading. However, entering safe mode identified two other issues. The telescope's aperture cover failed to close during the mode, which it had always done previously, and the WFC-3 experienced, quote, an unexpected error, though NASA did not elaborate further. Next up, second hot fire SLS course scheduled for Thursday. Following two weeks of tests and checkouts related to a faulty liquid oxygen valve, NASA and Boeing are now targeting March 18th for the second test firing of the SLS core stage. This comes after a failed test two months ago, which only saw the four RS-25 engines fire for just over a minute, well short of the eight minutes planned. Conservative test parameters were responsible for the early shutdown. This Thursday's hot fire test would be the eighth and final step in the green run and the first full testing of the core stage before its anticipated launch in 2022. Meanwhile, another component of the SLS rocket reached an important milestone. Both 177-foot-tall, 1.6-million-pound solid-fueled boosters had now been stacked and assembled in the VAB at Kennedy Space Center. The ULA-built upper stage for SLS is also finished, as are the Orion spacecraft and European service model. Well, shit's coming together. It's getting there. Yeah, I'm like, okay, sure. <laughs> it's coming along. Okay, and finally, China successfully launches Long March 7A. New generation rocket, the Long March 7A, successfully took off from its Wenchang launch site on Thursday with Xi'an 9, a classified experimental payload headed to GTO. The 60.1 meter long, 3.35 meter diameter rocket uses kerosene and liquid oxygen for its core stage and also has four side boosters and is capable of delivering up to seven metric tons to GTO. GTO, making it more capable than the Long March 3B from which it derives some technology. The country's main space contractor, CASC, plans to carry out three to five missions a year with this rocket, which is also capable of lunar and deep space missions. All right, let's move on to this week in space flight history, and we have no winners. And there's a good reason for that, which I will explain. <laughs> I think, as I'd mentioned last week, this was an event suggested by Chuba Turkosi, who often makes correct guesses, and he gave me the clue. That was a tricky clue because uh, no one knew what that was in reference to. But like I just said, we'll get to that. All right. So the event was on the 21st of March, 2007, and that was the second launch of Falcon 1. I guess at the top, what I'll say is that a lot of this information I actually got from a book that has just come out as of like not even two weeks ago, uh, written by Eric Berger, whose resources we use all the time. He's, you know, he's probably the leading space journalist, at least in my opinion, I think so. Um, he's just a great writer and he writes very good books. So he has a new book called Liftoff. And this is all about the early days of SpaceX. 
And uh, so that's where I got most of this information from. But I highly recommend that anyone out there read it or you can download the audiobook. It's actually really good. I already have it. I'm not quite done. I'm probably like a third of the way through it, but uh, it's pretty awesome. All right. So I'm just going to go one launch back before we get to the second launch. Let's talk about the first just very briefly, like literally just a couple sentences. So the first launch was in March of 2006. This event is in March of 2007. So this was one full year prior. And that first launch, just to put it in context, was uh, due to corrosion of a little B-nut, which is kind of like a little connector that connects a tube to some other tank or whatever it might be. And in this case, it was a fuel line. Um, and there was corrosion due to the sea salt coming off of the ocean because this was, you know, being launched um, in Kwajalein. So this second launch is coming off of their first failure. And it's a full year later. And the context I got from the book or just the general tone is that they were all, especially Musk, was very impatient and wanted to launch as soon as possible. So this is just a, you know, frantic time in the company's existence. And I guess it still is. That probably hasn't really changed. <laughs> so on that first launch, there was also a second stage LOX valve, which was left open. So it was actually under pressure. So it would not have made it to orbit, like even if this little bee nut had not come loose. But, you know, that's what happened. And so it, it had sprayed fuel everywhere. The engine caught fire and then it crashed back down into the ocean. So that was their first failure. So a full year is going by. They're trying to correct problems and make, and they're just trying to make all these changes. And so cut to about, I guess, nine months later, Musk calls together his senior staff, um, his senior engineers, and they're all discussing the second launch's biggest concerns because, uh, you know, there's a lot of unknown unknowns that keep happening, but they do have some known unknowns, I guess you could say. <laughs> and during this meeting, there's a number of concerns. Now, the book doesn't go into it like every last one of them, but you can imagine, you know, what they might be. But among these concerns was slosh in the second stage fuel tank. But it wasn't considered a huge concern. There were other ones that they had slightly higher on the list, such as faulty components from suppliers, which is, you know, a problem that they have definitely had over the years, as well as poor performance from other hardware. And I should say poor performance in simulations that they have been running. So they had these types of concerns. Slosh was definitely among them. And Hans Koenigsmann had decided to address this problem by just running more simulations. So they had, I think, three different models. Um, and I'm not sure... Again, it wasn't specified, but essentially three different models of how you might get an off-nominal event having to do with slosh in the second stage tank. And this is, of course, due to the fact that there are not baffles, because I don't think you can really get slosh or at least problematic slosh problems if you have baffles in that tank. But the simulations that had been run seemed to come back pretty good, and it was only in very rare cases that they had any issues. In his words, a lot of things had to combine badly. So it was kind of a rare event if it were to happen at all. So the first stage of the Falcon 1 did have baffles, but the problem is putting those baffles on the second stage, that is much more of a mass penalty because it has to go all the way to orbit. So you're, you know, like having to carry this extra weight the whole way up. And and that's like one of the reasons why they didn't want to put baffles on the second stage. But Koenigsmith did think that it was a pretty big concern. And so he wanted to look into it further. But this is where like Elon gets involved and you can kind of see how his impatience tends to direct what happens next. <laughs> there were a number of issues with putting baffles in the second stage. 
And one big one was that they actually wanted to keep their 1,000 kilograms to orbit payload, which was already in the red, I believe. So they were having to make all these little sacrifices because they just kept having to add more weight to the vehicle. And this was really kind of a no-go option because they just couldn't afford it. Plus, you know, like I said, like Elon Musk is pretty impatient. He didn't want to do any more simulations. And the Merlin 1C, I believe it was the 1C or the 1B's performance was not as high as expected on that first stage. There was um, actually aluminum parts that were also coming in heavier than expected. And so this was adding weight as well. So they were already in the red zone on the payload, as I said. Oh, and then another issue would be just having to put the baffles in. They would actually have to weld them to the inside of the aluminum alloy tank. And that's actually pretty tricky. Um, the walls were described in the book as being perilously thin. And, you know, this was due to mass concerns. So they were already trying to make this tank absolutely as thin as possible. And they were kind of pushing it even then. So they, they didn't think that they could weld any joints onto it because, you know, those might cause uh, yeah. slight cracks. So I guess at this point, Musk had just decided that this would just make it too risky to put in baffles. Plus, he said this was actually on their list of, you know, top concerns. This actually came in at a number 11. So how bad could it be? And those were his words. You know, how how bad could this ultimately be? Well, it turns out it could be pretty bad. Famous last words, right? <laughs> yeah. And if you recall, the clue was this list goes up to 11 or at least it should have. So that is a little bit of foreshadowing there. So now a couple of days before flight, or I guess a couple of weeks at this point, but we're getting closer, they decided to not use any kind of a payload, which is what they did in the first flight, which carried a Falcon Sat 2, which was a United States Air Force Academy payload. Uh, but, you know, that was lost. So this time they just decided to go for um, a mass simulator. One practice that they began, and this really astonished me, and this just goes to show how much of a... You know, they had this very cowboy, cavalier attitude towards, you know, like building rockets, mm. is that they didn't actually catalog any of the parts that they were putting into the vehicle, which is like a standard practice. You always get the serial number of everything that you put onto the rocket. And they actually began this process at this point, which they hadn't done for the Falcon 1 first flight. Jeez. So that was one big change. So they didn't know. Yeah. And so the only way that they could like gather data was to sift through wreckage. And, but they didn't know necessarily which component went onto to the vehicle you know like there was probably a lot of forensic work that they had to do or at least more than they would have had to do um another big change was that they did integrate sensors onto this vehicle uh they had very few on the first flight so they weren't getting a lot of data back as to you know what was working and what was not working which is why they didn't know about the b-nut that had failed they actually found that out just again by sifting through wreckage they didn't have any sensors on lower pressure in the LOX tank on that second stage so this is all stuff that they kind of had to fix. You know, they had to know what was going on with the vehicle. So they vastly upgraded the sensor package and, you know, they just, you know, installed everything that, that they needed to in order to get good data at this time. Um, and they also upgraded the name of the vehicle to Falcon 1.1 because it in some ways was actually a new vehicle. They did do some rerouting of the racetrack, you know, which is the wires that go from the second stage in their various tanks down towards the engine. And so they had pretty much rewired the vehicle. And in, in many respects, it was a new Falcon one. So wait, I, I'm, I'm still like boggled that mm -hmm. they weren't cataloging the serial numbers of the parts that were going into their vehicle. Like, how do you, how do you not do Like, I can't understand even a, a momentary decision where you think that it's better to get the job done quickly. Like, well, I think that that's 
exactly what they were thinking, or at least what Elon Musk was pushing for. And a lot of the changes to actually do things the right way, this only happened because at that point, SpaceX had brought in um, a veteran. I can't remember his name. Um, I've already forgotten it. I think his last name was Mazur. Um, and he had, you know, been in the industry for many, many years. And he's the one that kind of said, hey, you need to start doing things the right way here. Mm. Um, and, you know, he implemented other changes like, you know, you can't wear flip flops when you're on the floor. You have to actually wear shoes, you know, things like that, <laughs> because they they I mean, no, but that's how they were doing things. I mean, yeah. they wow. were on this little Pacific Island and they were in T-shirts and they were just. But but yeah. like OSHA violations, I can understand like on an individual level like on, a, on an organizational level it you you would never say yeah let's include flip-flops in acceptable footwear but like on an individual level you go ah i forgot to grab my boots i'm just going to go out on the floor in these flip-flops i'm just grabbing one part like i understand that but like cataloging the serial numbers is not a regulation compliance thing that's just like basic, hey, let's learn from the mistakes that we're inevitably going to make. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. it's really like, I don't know, like writing an article where you cover up every line of text that you've written as you're writing it. Like that that makes it sound like that sounds like it's harder to operate without a good catalog rather than mm-hmm. faster. <laughs> it's kind of self-defeating. Yeah. That's that's crazy. I mean, it's, you know, you can look at it in a negative light. You could also look at it in a positive light, which would be like, that's how fresh and new they were. And like how, look at how much they've accomplished when, you know, they began so humbly, I guess. But that, I just, I don't understand that at all. That, that doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't make any sense, but I think that through reading the book, I found that there was just so many mistakes like that, that they had made that it's kind of to be expected. And I, I mean, I can only say that, that they were, you know, young and experienced, ambitious, you know, and so was Elon. I mean, he's the one, you know, who had pretty much like signed off on all this type of stuff. And I, he just wanted to get to orbit. And I think that maybe the mentality was they knew what the components were. They just didn't know exactly which one maybe. So, and they just didn't, it, it just I, didn't dawn on them that. I, I get the feeling that Elon is not the type of person who keeps uh, computer boxes around. Like every time I bought a new phone or a new computer, I keep the box for like a year just in case, you know, I need to return it or sell it or something. And I got a feeling yeah, that's, that's kind of how I do it. Yeah. Right. And that's, I mean, I fight that impulse myself. I, like I keep the box, but then I'm like, I don't need this. Like, what am I doing? I'm not, I'm not going to, it could, because I hate having boxes. That's just, you know, I don't like, yeah. I just don't like clutter. But anyway, yeah. I, I, t- I tend to keep them on my desk and at the point where I'm tired of seeing it on my desk is when I throw it out. At least that's yeah. that's been what I've been trying to do recently. I don't know how how successful it's been. Yeah. yeah so getting back to the issues they were having prior to the launch, um, another issue was getting the rocket to communicate with the ground support equipment. Kind of important. Yeah, kind of important. And they had to fly from California back to Kwajalein. So pretty much, you know, this is all taking place um, in California, then, you know, on the Kwajalein Atoll, which is way out in the Pacific. So there's a lot of flying back and forth. And the main, if you will, characters in this book, which are real people, they're all, you know, young people. And you really get the sense of how stressful it was on them because it's just a lot of spending time on planes going back and forth and they're having to live on this little island where they don't have to you know like half the time they don't have running water i mean it's just it's just crazy what it's like and they're getting horrible sunburns and it it just sounds kind of hellish so there were some people who had to go back to the atoll to work on the rocket because they were trying to solve um this communication issue from california but they couldn't and then they just kind of decided okay we have to go back and actually work the problem 
Um, they fixed that problem. They had gotten up to the wet dress rehearsal. And then an interesting issue came up with this, which has to do with the tanking and the detanking of the liquid oxygen, which how do you do that on a tiny little island way out in the Pacific? So what they were doing is they would have to have 5,000 gallon containers shipped in from the mainland. And this would take about a month. And these things, you know, were of course cryogenically stored, but even then there was about a third of it, which would boil off. So they had to basically take that lost. So someone came up with the idea of like purchasing a giant locks machine, like an industrial liquid oxygen making machine. And Elon said, sure, try it. And uh, they ordered it. They got it shipped in. They had to work on it for several weeks, I think, and, you know, trying to get it just to even get going. And it actually did work. It supplemented their oxygen needs by about like 300 gallons. I think it could produce about 300 gallons a day. <laughs> so that helped. But then it broke shortly thereafter. I don't remember how long, but it didn't last for very long. So they just ended up having to dump it in the lagoon. And now it's an artificial reef. Um, but <laughs> Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jeez. So that you know didn't how much work they paid out. for it? Those things can't be cheap. No, I don't think so. I mean, they had to get Elon Musk to sign off on that order because that was a concern that was brought up. I don't think it said they said how much it costs, but did did they like buy probably, it used or something? Like what was yeah, the couple of days working on it? Okay. So they, they were actually having to get it back into working condition, not just like figuring out how to plug it in without running water. Yeah, they had to basically go inside the thing and they and they said that they had spent like days like just like applying grease and lube and all this other stuff to yeah. get things, you know, actually going. It was actually operated by a local on the island um for some time, but then it caught fire. He had to like abandon the thing and then that's when they Boy, just had to dump you know, it off. You know where you really don't want a fire. <laughs> It's where yeah. you're making yeah, liquid, liquid oxygen, oxygen generator. <laughs> well, I say it caught fire. I I might be wrong. It basically burned up, but that doesn't mean it caught fire. But it kind of like you know locked up. Maybe like it seized. Like maybe you know. Yeah, like engine, I mean, you know, I, I bet you a lot of the the grease that they were applying to it was just sealing interfaces mm -hmm. to be able, you know, because you've got all those fluids running around the refrigerants and all that. And I I, I wonder if the burn up is like delicate parts inside started burning in the oxygen heavy environment oh that's a possibility yeah yeah but yeah so that didn't work out <laughs> um <laughs> but they were able to do their first aesthetic fire on march 16th so we're getting close to the actual launch date so they performed that static fire it was successful but on launch day which was on march 20th or that was supposed to be the launch day they had been scrubbed at t minus 60 seconds by the flight computer and this was due to a pressure sensor which had indicated a, a leaky fuel valve so they had to detank the vehicle which made elon very unhappy so he's actually in uh he's in else to go into California and he's in that little trailer that they had purchased like monitoring everything from there so that's kind of you know that's like their communication hub or their little makeshift mission control he was actually pretty upset about this so he didn't want to detank the vehicle he just wanted to reset and launch again but luckily he was stopped by the launch director Tim Buzza who had you know told him hey this could be you know like a real problem so we have to look at it and then he said well how about we just keep the locks in there but he said well no we have to detank because it's not safe and so he like really had to it's Elon that, you know, you can't leave a, you know, giant rocket fueled up before you go and look inside to see what's wrong with it, which again is like one of those things yeah. that you would think, well, why would they ever do that? But this is how they thought. This is how he was thinking yeah. at the time. Like, that well, was and, his thought and process. yeah, like that, that makes sense. Like, you know, taking shortcuts like that make, makes sense to me. I and mean, they're still dumb as nails. I mean, it sounds, I don't know, to me, that's, that's the kind of shortcut that I personally would not make because that sounds yeah. scary well, and dangerous, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't do it either. I'm, I'm super, super cautious, but 
Right, but yeah. if you but if you roll the die, then it's it helps the, you know, the project. You know what I mean? Like that's kind of yeah. right the distinction you're making, yeah. Ben, which is not yeah. keeping track of serial numbers is not helping right. the project ever. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly, man. I, so I wonder, I wonder if Musk decide, decided that it was a mistake to stay in California. I wonder if he's like, I should have just flown out there and gone and done it myself. Yeah. Like, <laughs> So that's my next note. Oh, The launch director, Tim Buzz, said, I mean, he overrode Elon's decision, but he had suspected that if he were there, um, you know, he would have gotten his way. But luckily, Musk was, you know, 5,000 miles away, so he really couldn't do anything about it. So basically, he said, well, no, we're going to detank the vehicle, um, and that's that. But um, that had made Elon pretty angry because uh, he was just ready to go. And I don't know why that impa- – well, actually, I do know why because there were other issues. You know, They had some bad weather coming up, and this was just all becoming prohibitively expensive as the days went on. So they you know, had to launch soon. Um, but luckily, they detanked because they actually did find an issue. It wasn't a big one, but you know, they had to fix the problem. So this was you know, not just a faulty sensor. So they were able to reset the launch for the following day on March 21st. So they reset, and then – just before liftoff, it actually aborts once again. And this was due to low combustion chamber pressure. So they had to look into that, figure out what went wrong there. And it turns out the chamber pressure was actually just 0.5% below the abort limit. So like not by too much. But the reason for that was actually due to the RP-1 being slightly cooler than it should have been. Um, and that's because they had detanked the rocket from the previous day and then they had stored the RP-1, then they had retanked it. And during that time, the RP-1 did not have enough time to actually be warmed back up by the storage containers that they kept it in, which keep it at about like 80 degrees. So they have these storage containers that apparently warm the RP-1, which I would have thought that you would want cooler fuel, right? Because that's something that they're always going for now. But I guess with the RP-1, with this particular vehicle, you don't. Yeah. And you would have thought that out in the middle of the Pacific, that you would have to cool it down to 80 degrees. But I, I wonder if it cools down due to compression or something like that. Well, like if you're out there, it does get cool at night. It gets down into like the 60s, like pretty much mm. every single night. And so oh. the problem is that, you know, they had like reset and they didn't give the vehicle enough time to heat back up in the daytime sun. So they had to detank about half the fuel, um, <laughs> retank it with warmer <laughs> RP-1. And then they figured that that would put them just over their pressure limit um, in the combustion chamber. And that worked out just fine because uh, the vehicle did lift off um, and they had good staging. Uh, but slightly after the staging event, the second stage began to roll and it got up to about 60 RPM. And then it basically spiraled off course and flamed out and, you know, came back to Earth. So <laughs> it didn't quite work, but they were still happy because they had made it much further than they had before where they barely made it off the launch pad. I think they, it was only about 30 seconds or so before they lost their first flight. So this one was slightly better. It was later confirmed um, that the problem was due to sloshing in the second stage fuel tank. That did come back to bite them, uh, even though mm-hmm. it, there was a, you know, low probability according to simulations. I watched the video earlier and the staging, I mean, the staging worked but like the engine bell the upper stage definitely knocked off the sides of the kind of intertake inner tank area during the separation i i put a little video on there like it's in the discord it's a noticeable little bonk <laughs> you can yeah. see see that's also what happened on the third flight maybe i'm confusing the two i don't remember why the second flight it it bumped it. it i think it was something that they were struggling with wasn't it it was something that they really had to work to fix and that's why they have a pneumatic pusher in 
in Falcon 9. It, it was a problem with the third flight for sure because they had switched from the ablative cooling engine to the regenerative one, which means that there's a little bit of excess fuel left in the lines. And essentially, the first stage burned a little bit longer than mm. it should have. And then that's why it rammed into the second stage. Mm. Um, but on this one, it was still the ablative engine. But yeah, there's probably some other reason why that had happened. Um, to fix a problem, they had to increase the separation time after the cutoff of the first stage to about like six seconds or so, because it was down to like two or three or something like that. So they had to extend that time. But yeah, I think that that bump probably is what, you know, that Got probably- to start sloshing in the first place. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's kind of what started the oscillation. And it was described by Hans Koenigsman as being kind of like trying to run with soup in a bowl. It kind of like starts to oscillate mm -hmm. around the edges of the bowl and you have this little cavity towards, you know, the bottom. So you can kind of see how that would end disastrously. Despite the failure, the team felt better because, you know, this was their best launch yet. And they had kind of expected that it would take at least three flights. So of course, little did they know it would take four. Um, but that's for the next chapter. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, so from that, the big lesson that Elon Musk learned was to always go up to 11 on your list of top <laughs> risks. And, and in fact, that is an, like an actual practice that they carry to this day. So it's a weird, odd number. It's a prime number, but it just seems weird that you would have a, a list of 11 things, but that's actually something that they do now. They always go up to 11, which I think is cool. I mean, that's just one of the little enduring things about SpaceX. But yeah, that's what I learned. And so yeah, the clue doesn't make any sense because uh, this information, as far as I can tell, is something that you don't know unless you read the book. I think it came from a talk that Eric Berger had with Elon, uh, probably no more than, you know, like a couple months to a year ago, whenever he started writing the book so no one knew about this at the time so that's that's my bad i should have uh checked chubby's source <laughs> but i just figured that he got it from somewhere off the internet and it was good enough but yeah the good thing is is that you know i have discovered this book and i highly recommend it so i'll also plug uh lift off by eric berger check it out and yeah that's this week in spaceflight history cool so next week is the 23rd through the 29th of march ben do you have a clue for us yeah next week in 2006 uh, the clue is first sweep of a dusty surface. All right. So if you think you know what the answer to that clue is, uh, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right. Moving on then. Let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. we got five different events. Some of them launches, some of them not. Yeah. So first up, um, we're expecting to see Starship SN11 fly. Um, this would be Tuesday the 16th at, you know, 11 p.m. is when the the possible window opens and then uh, 12.30 a.m. Is, is when it potentially closes. The, those are UTC times. Uh, so 1,100 hours uh, on the 16th uh, to uh, 0, 0,130 hours on the 17th. And I don't think that we know much about uh, the plans for this. Um, it's going to be another 10-kilometer flight. Um, we know that they are planning on landing with two engines all the way down to the ground. Um, but, you know, just more of this uh, iterative um, problem solving by uh, mm -hmm. fiery trials <laughs> kind of thing going. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's uh, that's SN11. Next up on the 18th of March, or this Thursday, uh, just to repeat from our short and sweet earlier, that we have the SLS second hot fire test. So let's hope they can make it to uh, eight minutes burning that core stage uh, over at 
at Stennis. And then after that, on the 19th of March at 12.15 p.m., and I assume that's Eastern time, coverage of the relocation of the International Space Station Expedition 64 Soyuz, which was MS-17, that is going to be relocated from the Rosfiat module to the Poisk module. And that's getting out of the way to make room for the next Soyuz coming up, which would be MS-18. So yeah, the, the coverage begins at 12.15, but the undocking is uh, scheduled at 12.38 p.m. Uh, and again, that's Eastern time, and then it'll be redocking at the Poisk module at 107. So yeah, it only takes about a half hour to translate on over to a different docking port or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that doesn't take as long as I thought. Yeah, that's about how long it takes for us to translate to a different topic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just about. Ooh, self-burn. Those are rare. <laughs> In the amount of time it takes for us to discuss something, they can move an entire spacecraft. <laughs> All right. Then after that, we have a Soyuz 21A uh, with a Frigate M upper stage flying CAS 500, um, which is the first of two South Korean Earth observation satellites. So this is CAS 501. And then um, alongside... Probably underneath uh, CAS 500 uh, are going to be more than a dozen other satellites. And uh, Space Launch Now points out that uh, in those uh, other, like the the rideshare uh, satellites, one of them is the first spacecraft by the Cotillion uh, Space Agency, or the, the Catalan Space Agency. So that's pretty cool. And that mission is going to be flying on Saturday, March the 20th at 0607 hours UTC uh, out of uh, Baikonur. And finally, we have one more launch. We have the Falcon 9 Block 5 taking Starlink 22. So, you know, this story, mm -hmm. it's a, another batch of 60 satellites for Starlink. Um, with precise orbit, it has an instantaneous liftoff window at 0437 UTC again on March 21st. And as all Starlink flights have. It will be launching out of Cape Canaveral, Florida at uh, Slick 40. All right. Those are your upcoming space flight events. Time to deal with the show then. And we would like to thank Rod Jakey's and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the time. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links. We're Orbital Podcast on both. You can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. That is it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.